Hey, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish here with the Lazy D&D Talk Show. In this show, we talk about all things D&D for about an hour right before I start preparing for my Sunday D&D game, which will happen about 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to help me out and, and help support shows like this, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish and signing up. When you do so, you'll get access to all kinds of exclusive content, and but most of all, you'll be helping me put on shows like this. So thank you to all of the patrons of Sly Flourish for the support that you give me. I have a list of things I thought I would talk about today, but during this show, I like to chat with everybody about whatever is going on so we can talk about whatever you want. You can ask any questions you like. We can jump around. So one of the things that happened this past week, which on the surface probably isn't that interesting to lots of people who have already been playing D&D, but it's actually a very big deal, is that Wizards of the Coast announced that in-house they are translating the D&D core books into many different languages. Comic book says, Dungeons & Dragons expands non-English language products. Wizards of the Coast announced uh, plans to expand its line of non-English D&D products, player's handbook, into French, German, Italian, and Spanish. And then there was some, a little bit of talk about the other languages. There's only one other language in D&D Beyond. I believe that is correct. The, so, yeah, they, I think they, they used to. This, there was some drama about this because I guess Gale Force 9 was doing some translations. And Wizards of the Coast, there was some lawsuit or something like that between Wizards of the Coast and Gale Force 9, which seems to happen. And I guess that got settled. And next thing you know, Wizards of the Coast is doing it in-house. So what is interesting about this is so D&D announced that they're making a significant long-term investment expanding their non-English line, including hiring a dedicated team of members to work on the product, looking into printing options outside the U.S. and China, ex completing extensive translation reviews and collaborating with local market teams, right? So, okay, that's cool, right? Great. We want to watch, we want to watch D&D expand beyond just, just English language. And that's great. But what is it? the interesting thing, and this is where I first heard about this talking to some of my other producer friends, people who make various D&D content, and we talk a lot about 6E. There was some of, some of the... I didn't pay any attention to people who talked about 6E until I started seeing other producers talking about it, people that are kind of in the know. And there was this... There were kind of rumors flying around that they had heard through a friend of a friend that Watsi might have been starting to do some 6E development. And what did that mean? A lot of producers are like, well, what does that mean? Should we slow down on producing mechanically content for 6E? What do we do, right? My answer was, who knows? We do what we do, right? You, do, you, do, you go with the information you got and you stay flexible so that you can move as things go forward. And then there's how we feel about it as a fan, right? And I think all of us have opinions on how we feel about it as a fan. Lots of different opinions on it. And, and I don't know that they, you know, lots of different opinions. And a lot of times those opinions turn into, I expect Watsi will do X, where X is the thing you want them to do. And that always isn't the case either. However, the same friends of mine who were uh, in the production side that we're talking about saw this news and said, well, I guess that quells those rumors because they're not going to spend a significant amount of resources and money and energy to translate the five ebooks and then within a year turn around and put out a new version of the game so i would say and and so i, I you know okay well i got that from some people over here let me ask some other people i got another some other groups of friends of mine that are kind of in the know and they're kind of 
you know, they're producers of, of content and they, they think about this a lot and they've been around doing this for a long time. I said, what do you guys think about it? And say, well, that's the end of that. Like, you know, they're probably not going to succeed if they're going to do that. I, I said, like, how, how likely did you think it was that they were going to do a 6E before and how likely do you think it is now? And the answer was, I thought that they might and now I don't think they're going to. And so that's, oh, that's very interesting. So, yeah, so I, say, I would say it's at least two years Right. And, and and I would guess I'm just guessing. And, you know, who knows? But I would think that, that probably for two years, we wouldn't see anything if they're going to bother to spend a lot of money to translate the old books. So I thought that was very interesting. And I thought I would talk about it. I'm fine with it. I think I think sticking with 5e is great. I love 5e. I'm happy with it. I don't expect that I would that that 6e would be that much better and that I would be much happier with 6e than 5e. There are lots of things about 5e that are burrs up my ass. And, you know, the reality is there'll probably be things in the next version that'll be birds up my ass. So I don't think, you know, I, I don't think that that would be a big deal. I think I'm just, you know, 5e is as happy as I've been with D&D in the 30 years that I've been playing D&D. So I'm pretty good. And, and, and there, there, there we go. Some folks in my Discord today said, hey, why don't you talk more about third-party books? Like, I always hear you say things like, don't let Watsi be the driver of your happiness with D&D right? Which is something that I do say and something that I agree with. Like D&D is ours, right? Not from like an IP standpoint, but from like a game standpoint, we own it, right? We bought it and we have the books and we can do whatever we want with it. And unlike any kind of computer game, if you think about like World of Warcraft, right? You don't have any control over World of Warcraft and where they go. You know, you can ask them to do things like the classic WoW servers and all of that. But you know, you can't really control it. But D&D, you can do anything you want. You can take whatever rules you like and keep them. You can take whatever rules you don't and throw them away. You can add new rules. You can subtract new rules. You can do all kinds of things. And because of the SRD, you can publish a whole lot of stuff that can change the game in all kinds of different ways. And many people have, and many people are, and they're going to be very cool. So we have a lot of control over this. And that means that if we, we don't have to depend upon Watsi for our happiness with D&D, the kinds of books that they put out we don't that doesn't that doesn't matter to us as far as how happy we are with the game we can be happy with the game whatever watsi does if they put out a book that's disappointing there are other books if they put a book that's great that's awesome right and that's why i talk about like sh we should probably think about them on the same level as we think about any other third-party publisher imagine DD is its own thing and imagine watsi and monty cook games and cobalt press and you know whoever are all you know mcdm all of them are different producers producing stuff and i think it's pretty safe to say that there's third party stuff that's been better than first party stuff that's come out on watsi so we're i mean i put my money where my mouth is i buy tons of third party stuff but i don't talk about it all that much and i don't have really or an organized way of talking about it all that much so i'd like to do more of that on this show and talk about third party stuff that i've seen that i that i really dig so I have a list of about five that came off the top of my head. And the reality is you've, if you've been watching my show or you've, you know, seen my stuff, you've heard about at least four of the five of these I've talked about, well, three of the five of them I've talked about a lot. So I probably won't spend too much time on them, but I'll talk about them a little bit. So one of them, and they all happen to be on my shelf, which is, which is handy. I think actually Iron Sworn is not on my shelf. It's upstairs. So Arcana of the Ancients is, was a Kickstarter that Monty Cook Games did. Monty Cook 
if you're not aware, was one of the lead developers of the third edition of D&D. Now he runs his own company. He actually was involved early on in the development of fifth edition, the fifth edition playtest, but ended up leaving Watsi. He was contracted and then left his contract and went to make his own company, Monty Cook Games. He brought along Bruce Cordell, Shanna Germain, I forget the others, Sean Reynolds and others to work on to work on their products. So they one of the they did a Kickstarter. They they made a big game called Numenera, which is outstanding. I love Numenera and you should definitely check out Numenera. They also took some of the stuff that they made for Numenera and applied it to fifth edition and ran a Kickstarter for it called Arcana of the Ancients. And this was the output of that. One of the outputs of this. Arcana of the Ancients is a fifth edition source book that focuses on mostly on item so it's got adventures in here it's got their their version of magic items in here you know ciphers relics and iron flesh are their sort of items that you pick up a big section on creatures and then a a bunch of some some dm advice and then a bunch of adventures that you can run that sort of take the high fantasy of 5e and turn it into science fantasy and uh, a lot of, if you're familiar with Numenera, you will see a lot of Numenera stuff in here. It's really a bridge between Numenera and 5e. It uses 5e mechanics with Numenera stuff. Very cool book. Really, really well produced. The, they make, Monty Cook Games makes books, makes gorgeous, gorgeous books. They're one of the few companies where I will regularly back the Kickstarter for the full print version because their print versions are so nice. As part of the Archon of the Ancients book, they also put out a dedicated monster book called Beasts of Flesh and Steel, which is just more monsters that sit right alongside the ones that are inside of Archon Archon of the Ancients. And they also, this one just came out, put out a campaign adventure called Where the Machines Wait by Bruce Cordell. What I find particularly interesting about this style is one of the things that's interesting about how Monty Cook Games makes their games is they don't hire freelancers for good or ill they have they use their in-house team to do everything and so so this was this whole campaign adventure a 96 page campaign adventure was written just by bruce cordell right it was i mean i'm I'm sure the rest of the team was involved but bruce cordell was the lead designer on this bruce cordell has been writing DD adventures for like 30 years he used to work at wizards of the coast and, and did many of the adventures for fourth edition so, so to have an, a campaign adventure written by somebody like Bruce Cordell, where he dedicated himself to the whole thing, you don't get to see a lot of like this anymore, right? You don't really get to see a lot of like really established adventure writers dedicating themselves 100% to an adventure where they are the only real voice of that adventure. And I think that is a, it's a different style than what we see with Watsi these days, where we see lots of freelancers brought in and worked together into adventures. So I'm, I'm, I think that that is a cool different angle on how to put adventures together and where the machines wait is, is one such adventure. I need a drink. So, so it's a very cool and it's a very Numenera style adventure where you go down into the depths of a, some kind of ancient machine and get involved in stuff. So very cool, 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 cool adventure. And if you want other adventures, like in the Numenera angle, they have tons and tons of material for Numenera. So that's another one that I thought was really cool. I use Archon of the Ancients and Beasts of Flesh of Steel pretty extensively in my Eberron campaign. And if you go back through my old Eberron show notes and my, my, the old Lazy DM prep shows, you can see how I used Archon of the Ancients and Beasts of Flesh and Steel in my game. They were really cool. They scared the hell out of the players. They were going around in the Mornland, and it was like the old wreckage of 
of warforged artifacts and sentient machines that had been created by House Kenneth in and were left there after the end of the after the morning, the day of the morning, the day of the morning, the morning. So, yeah, Bruce Cordell's first adventure for 2E, The Gates of Firestorm Peak, was done in 1996. So that's 2006 is 10 years. 2016 is 20 years. Yeah, so 25 years ago, right? So, yeah, so you can use a lot of the material, especially if you have like a techno fantasy angle to it. If you want sort of sentient machines, these are great books for it. And I used it in Eberron. They fit very well in Eberron, and I loved it, and it was great. I think I've already talked a lot about Tolis before. So Tolis is another Monty Cook product. It is the biggest, I'm just going to show the size before my arm gives out on me. And one of the biggest source books, I think, it was the biggest source book for D&D that's ever been made. It's 600 and some pages long. It's enormous. 669 pages long. A little bit, oh God, I just banged the keyboard. I'm breaking stuff with this book. Huge source book about a city, a campaign, a city campaign. Tolis is the name of a giant city, and the book is all about running a full campaign, including a 1 to 20th level. It's got 20th level content in it, in this one city. Monty Cook put this together, I think, about 20 years ago or so, 15 years ago or so, 672 pages. And they redid it for both 5th edition and for the Cypher system. Cypher system is, is Monty Cook Games' core, their, their house system. But I bought the 5e version and it is a huge, beautiful source book of all kinds of depth. It's got adventures in it. It's got all kinds of places in it. NPCs. It's packed with artwork. Gorgeous book. Super expensive. And really, really neat. A real collector's, a real collector's item. And I would, I love it and I would run it. And I've talked about it before on the show. And my, my end result is like, if I hadn't just run... It, there, there's enough parallels between this and Sharn and Eberron, and I just ran a Sharn adventure that I'm probably not likely to run this for a few years if I was to run it at all. But it, I really dig it. And, it, you know, a lot of times when I think about books like these, running it isn't the goal always. Like just taking a book like this and reading it and diving into it and spending some time just exploring a little piece of a world that someone else created helps fire off our neurons and helps drive pathways in our brain that makes it easier for us to run the games we are running. So you don't have to run. The print copy is 150 bucks. Yes. And the PDF is, can you look up PDF cost? How much is the PDF? PDF is 60 bucks. Probably worth it for the PDF. I think it's worth it for the printed copy too. Like you're not going to get a book like this typically. So it is three source books worth of material in this. It's a huge book. So yeah, I think it's really cool. Three ribbons, you know, if you want to have different place markings for stuff. It's got a packet in the back of handouts and stuff. So it's, it's sort of like a book-sized version of like a Beetle and Grimm box set for this one world, which is really kind of neat. Um, but yeah, I find books like this and I love them just because I like how they inspire me, right? I like how they fill my head with ideas. And I think that that's really important. So I dig it. It's textured like stone. If you feel it, the texture on the front of it is every stone is a little bumpy. That's kind of cool. Really, really cool. Production value is really high. I can't let's put that over there because I crushed my other computer. Get that on the shelf. What else? So that was Tolis. Shadowed Keep on the Borderlands. This is by a publisher I had not heard of until relatively recently called Raging Swan. Raging Swan Press. And so, so Raging Swan puts out lots of system agnostic 
fantasy RPG material. And this one, Shadowed Keep on the Borderlands, is an adventure that has been thoroughly run and tested and played out and reworked. And, and there is both a 5e and sort of a system agnostic, like an OSR and a 5e version. And it's an homage to the original Keep of the Borderlands and what's the... I always forget the name of the introduction of the... What's it called? Uh... Temple of Elemental Evil, a city of Hamlet. So it's an homage to the city of Hamlet and Keep of the Borderlands, sort of mixed together. Really fun book. I've only I've only kind of like skimmed it, but I really like what I see. I love the idea. I'll tell you, one of the hardest parts with understanding a good adventure is how much testing it's gone through. How often has it been run by people? And has that feedback made its way back into the original product? And when it has, I feel a lot more confident about the books I'm reading. Playtesting of adventures is important, I think. And I know that this one has been tested thoroughly. It was pretty cheap, if I recall. Like, I think it was $20 for the PDF and print version. Let's take a look. Whoops. Drive through RPG, Shadowed Keep. Shadowed Keep on the Borderlands. We'll go for the 5e one. It is softcover premium book with PDF. Look at this. Why is there... Oh, premium color, 21, 22 bucks. So 22 bucks gets you the physical version of the book and gets you um, the PDF, which is 12 bucks on its own. So basically for like $10, you're getting the, the soft cover. So I was like, well, I'm going to pay that. So I did, and I'm, I'm happy, and I think I'm going to run it. I think I'm going to run this. I've got a, I've got a one-shot game coming up, and I have a feeling I'm going to dive into this. I like the idea of sort of an old-school adventure that sort of goes back to the first-edition-style stuff, right, and is a little bit more relaxed and a little bit more straightforward. So I really like it, but, but uh, Raging Swan Press makes lots of really good material. Another one that I happen to have on here is the GM Miscellany, Miscellany, Miscellany? Wilderness Dressings. There's another one that's Dungeon Dressings. And it's lots and lots and lots of random tables. And I'm a huge fan of random tables. I love the random tables. This one is the standard printing, not the premium. I should have gotten the premium because premium is way nicer. But just tons of material in here. And that's kind of Raging Swan's bag is lots of random tables that you can use in your game. So it's really, check out Raging Swan Press. Check them out on DriveThruRPG and pick up a couple and, and take a look at them. They're really, they're really great stuff. I really dig it. What else? Iron Sworn. I've talked about Iron Sworn all the time. So you can you can mention Iron Sworn before you can take a look back at Iron Sworn before. Oh, Morkborg. I should talk about Morkborg sometime. I, I have it and I love it. Yes, Morkborg is great stuff too. Check out Morkborg. I'll talk about that next time, I think. I'll bring it down here. So Iron Sworn, you can download for free, and I love it. Iron Sworn has is probably the best DM inspiration book I've seen. It is a solo. You can play solo, co-op, or guided. So you can play in lots of different versions. You can play from with one player, solo, just by yourself, or two people, or, or however many you want. So it scales really, really well. Beautiful book, really well put together, and some of the best, most integrated random tables I've seen to help generate ideas about stories. I've played through it once as a solo game myself. And really just, the, you know, the way that it kind of made my brain work, it's great DM brain exercise stuff. So if you can't get a game together, if you want to try just sitting down and playing this, great way to get your mind in the space and great way to sort of train your brain for improvisational thinking. I think it is a really, really powerful tool to help get our brains into improvisational, improvisational work. So yeah, check out Iron Sworn. Again, you can, you can download it for free. 
Uh, you can download the PDF for free. You know, here's the full PDF. Like, like you don't have to log in or anything. 260 pages, totally worth it. Worth getting the physical one. I have the I have the full physical Iron Sworn set plus Iron Sworn dwell, delves and all the cards and everything like that. Just a great, great book. Really cool, really evocative. Kind of a Skyrim-y sort of feel. The, the, the world is sort of a Skyrim sort of Iron Age. You know, almost feels like Iron Age Viking, Viking sort of stuff. Norse, a lot of Norse things. Really cool. It, it was, it was, a lot of it is brought together from fate and from the Powered by the Apocalypse system. It's not a pure Powered by the Apocalypse based game. It, it has its own system, but the system has taken a lot from these other sources. And I really think that Sean Tompkin is an amazing RPG designer, amazing writer. He has a new book coming out that Kickstarter, I think, ended. Iron Sworn Star something. Somebody will have to remind me. Star, it's going to come to me in a second here. But it's a space-based Iron Sworn game. Iron Sworn game. And it looks really, really cool. Who can remind me? Who remembers what Iron Sworn? Starforged. I was close. Uh, Iron Sworn Starforged, which the uh, Kickstarter is complete. 6,700 backers. Excellent. You know, really great. They got, you know, great number of backers. And it's, you know, and, and yeah, it's... I'm so excited. I'm so excited for this stuff. Really, really great stuff. So check out Iron Swarm if you haven't. It's great DM. It's great DM brain brain material. That was Iron Swarm. The other one, and this is a little self-promoting, a little bit, was Adventures from the Potbellied Kobold. This was put together by Jeff Stevens, my friend Jeff Stevens. And it is a book of how many adventures? 15 short adventures for the fifth edition of the world's most popular RPG. Beautiful internal art. It goes up from uh, f second level. Looks like the first adventure is second level to ninth level. So a whole 15 adventures from second to ninth level. He put together a big team of writers who worked on this, including yours truly. I did some work for it. Alan Tucker, Alex Klippinger, Catherine, uh, Catherine Evans, Cody Falk, Greg, Greg Marks, Hannah, Hannah Rose, James Intercasso, Jeff Headley, Jeff Stevens, JVC Parry, Kat Kruger, Maxine Henry, Mike Shea, I don't know who that guy is, M.T. Black, Oliver Darkshire, Sean Merwin, Tony Winslow Brill, and Tony Patricia. I'm probably mispronouncing those, those games. Tons of great writers, really established, really cool writers, beautiful artwork, you know, just, just gorgeous, gorgeous art, really well put together, you know, just a wonderful book. And I, I really, if you want a book of short adventures and who doesn't, pick up this book, Adventures of the pop Valley Kobold. Let me pull it up on the DMs Guild. I got this giant stack of books now. It's getting disorganized. Really, really cool book. Let's, let's take a look. It was put out on drive-thru. It costs 20 bucks and it's worth it. You can also get uh, the hardcover premium so the Watermark PDF plus hardcover premium color book is 50 bucks, and I recommend it. And I recommend it for a couple of reasons. One is gorgeous book, really one that you can put on your shelf and pull down and just run adventures from it. Really handy. You get the PDF on the hardcover, but also drive through RPGs. Print costs are about to go up by about 10 bucks. So this is going to get more expensive. It's probably going to be 59 bucks in like two weeks. Yeah, three weeks. So if you want any hardcover books, now's the time to get them. Hardcover premium color books. Uh, including all of mine. So Ruins of the Grender Root, Fantastic Adventures, and Fantastic Lairs, and Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master are all about to go up about five to 10 bucks in price. So if you ever want any of my books, now is the time to buy them. So let me get another drink. Yeah, so really cool, really cool stuff. 
pop out kobold. So yeah, I'll do this again. So next week I will dig a little deeper because some of these I like I've talked about a lot. So I really should talk about some other cool third party stuff that I've got. There's definitely there's some of my other shelf. Definitely some cool stuff. Nord Games has been putting out a lot of cool things. Uh, so I'll probably talk a little bit about the stuff coming out of Nord Games next week. Really cool. So last week I, I said that I was going to talk about my Appendix N. This came up, I think it came up on, I don't remember where it came up. Somebody brought up to me and said, oh, I'd like to hear what your Appendix N is. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. I love to talk about the books that I like, right? And then I was like, wait a minute, who cares what I like, right? Like, it isn't a, so, so my rant about Appendix N is don't worry about what other people dig, right? Think about what you dig, put down your list and share them. And I'm going to share what I dig. You know, you can see the list right there. But we don't hang on to like any one person. It's like, oh, that's those are the books, right? Like we think back to when there was an Appendix N in the original 1EDD, there wasn't an internet, right? There was no way to find this stuff. There was no way to know what, you know, to get a curated list of good books. You had to like subscribe to magazines and stuff like a barbarian and get them. So, but now it's easy for us to share our stuff and you have like Goodreads and things where they can rank and share and you can get a hundred thousand reviews before you decide to pick up a book, right? So I think it's kind of neat. And I, I would, I would suggest an exercise for, for us lazy DMs to sit down and think about what has inspired us, right? What kind of material has inspired us? And when we get that list in front of us consciously and we're like, oh yeah, I really like this stuff. Then we can start to think about how we can draw more of that material into our game, right? And that matters. So what is your appendix N, right? Let me, let me know, right? Send me emails. Say, these are the things that really inspired me, right? Put a list of 10 together, right? Always list of 10. I love list of 10. What are the 10 major sources of fiction that heavens or, or not history, right? What has inspired you? What has, what, what are the sources of things that really have inspired your games? I'm really interested to find out. It turns out I wrote about this already. In Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, I have a chapter on this about, let's see, so running and thinking about your game, the priming the GM's brain, right? And in this is sort of my appendix N back when I wrote Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. And, you know, I, I but my, my point was like, prime your mind with good fiction. That's number one. Like prime, just put it in, right? Stephen King, if you want to be a writer, you got to do two things above all those. Read a lot and write a lot, right? Draw in fiction, watch and watch good stuff. Don't watch crap. I'm being, you know, table banging here, but like, think about what is really good and what, you know, is this a good story, right? Are, is this good? Or are we just like letting our brains rot? And I think there's good fiction out there, right? There's really good stuff. And so in, in the, in, in, in this chapter, chapter 25 of return, I talk about the stuff that had inspired me at the time. Blade itself, the crystal shard, the fifth season, the gunslinger, Hyperion, you know, th these are all things that I love and I still think back on them and, and how much I love them. Throne of the Crescent Moon, Norse mythology, movies, Black Panther, Chronicles of Riddick, Elizabeth, you'll notice that some of these are not fantasy and they're not, you know, that they, they come from a lot of different sources. That's because like the characters and the settings, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all wonderful characters and wonderful story, you know, Elizabeth, right? The movie about Queen Elizabeth's reign or about the beginning of Queen Elizabeth's reign, right? Really good. Kill Bill. You know, I like Kill Bill just because of how free it was, you know, 
Evil John says, Hyperion affected me profoundly. I think it is the most, I think it's my favorite science fiction series. The Hyperion series is amazing. It is huge in scale and scope on an order of Dune, right? Like jumps 300 years in some places and really fantastic story. Beautiful, beautiful set of four, four, books, four books. Hyperion, Fall of Hyperion, Endymion, and Rise of Endymion. Amazing science fiction series. American Gods is actually the time of trouble. Yeah, American Gods. Some people love, I, it's been so long since I read American Gods. Mad Max Fury Road, No Country for Old Men, Raise the Lost Ark, Thor Ragnarok, you know, TV shows, Angel, Battlestar Galactica, you know, so all of these. So you can check this out. And what video games inspire you? You know, I have lots of video games that inspire me. I'll tell you, the Demon Souls games, right? The Souls games done by From Software have changed completely how I think about D&D and how I run D&D. It was actually playing Bloodborne that got me to think about secrets and clues because I love the idea that in Bloodborne, you would pick up an item and the item would have a little bit of lore, like one sentence of lore. And they didn't tell you what the hell was going on. They didn't beat you over the head with story. Instead, you just picked up an item and you got this one little piece of information about it. Really cool. Like, I love that kind of storytelling. I love the storytelling that leaves a lot to your mind. And, and I think that that, that works, really well, works really well here. So this, if you want my appendix and this is probably the best source, but I have a few other things since writing that, that have influenced me. My wife and I are reading a really fun book called, called Gideon the Ninth, which is what lesbian necromancers in space is kind of the tagline and just a wicked fun book, really good sword and sorcery, crazy world, big scale. Again, like a book where the imagination of the author was just let free. And it's a really, really fun book. I'm, we're, we're, you know, I think we're hundred, hundred pages 100 pages in or so. Really fun. And there's another one called Harrow the Ninth, I think, is the next book. So there's two books in this series. Really fun. The King Kings of the Wild and Bloody Rose. I first heard about this at like Winter Fantasy a couple years ago. And I knew, I heard it from Robert Schwab, which meant I like, mm, if Robert Schwab likes it, I better be careful. Really great books. My wife and I read both of these books too. And they're just really fun hack and slash sword and sorcery. Really fun characters. Great writing. You know, and, and it, there, it, it is a really good example of contemporary dialogue in a fantasy world. And I think that in D&D that works. Like, we don't have to talk like fantasy characters. We can talk like regular people, you know, and, and yet be in a fantasy world. And I, and I think that Kings of the Wild and Bloody Rose was a book that really did that. Again, really neat, really neat way of showing, you know, how writing can change. So love it. The Broken Earth series by, I think that's by N.K. Jessamine as well. Yeah. So the Broken Earth trilogy by, which is the fifth season. I think that I have that in my, I think fifth season was in, in my list here. Yeah. Fifth season is in here. So there are two other books in the, in the fifth season. N.K. Jessamine did it. Really, really cool, widespread books. Kept me thinking long after I'd read them. I really dug it. You know, fifth season, Obelisk Gate and Stone Sky are the three books. Really cool. It also works really well for a Numenera game. Very high fantasy, high high um, science fantasy kind of world. Really, really dig it. And yeah, N.K. Jessamine has done a lot of other stuff. There's another series of books. I just started it and I haven't, I kind of set it aside that I want to go back to a huge, the Inheritance Trilogy. So the Inheritance Trilogy is another one. And it's like, it's 22 bucks on the Kindle. Paperback is 22 bucks, but it's enormous. It's this huge book. And it's one where like I started reading it and I loved it. And I'm like, I'm going to set that one aside because someday I'm going to want to read this whole thing. And it's like crazy big. It's like a thousand pages, right? It's an enormous series. Cause I think it's a bunch of books put together. Yeah. 11, you know, 1100 pages, but I really, really interesting. Another one that's sort of like God's come to earth, 
which I really, which I really dig. So yeah, check out Broken Earth, but then also check out what did I, what was it called? The Inheritance Trilogy. I don't know how to spell. So I both dig that. N.K. Jessamine's a fantastic writer. The other one is East of West. So this is a comic book that I've been reading, a graphic novel that I've been reading. It is a long series about a kind of apocalypse, a post-apocalyptic world, but in which the four horsemen of the apocalypse come down to a future version of the world where the world has been, or at least the America has been broken off into different empires. And the different empires are all sort of dealing with the fact that the four horsemen have come. And one of the horsemen has betrayed the other three. Death, I think, I think it's death, has betrayed the other three horsemen. And it's about the war that they have on earth. Really, really, really cool graphic novel. I highly recommend it. Just wicked fun. You know, really, really enjoying it. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm really enjoying it. And the other one, which I already talked about, it is in my... It is in return, but it had a big influence on my Eberron game. I reread, I spent a year, I think from 2019, throughout 2019, I reread or listened to on Audible the entire eight-book Dark Tower series. There's seven in the main one, and then there's another sort of book that sits in between them. And, oh, I love those books to death. I will say on my second read-through, now that I'm in, now that I'm, I'm older, like I read it originally in my 20s, I think, 20s and 30s, and now I read it again. And my views have changed a little bit. And one thing is like the final two books just aren't great. I wish they were. And they're worth reading. They're not, they're not so bad. They're not readable. But King has always been about the journey more than the end. And he knows it. And he knew it then. And he's actually, his endings have gotten better. And from what I understand, it's because his son, Joe Hill, has been helping him with his endings, at least in a couple of cases. The ending, for example, to 112263, another Stephen King book was incredible, incredible ending to 112263 and an incredible ending to another book that he did called Revival. And those books have had tremendous endings. And I'm pretty sure it's because he's talking about it with Joe and Joe Hill is his pen name. And they, and I think he's getting these better endings from there, but he didn't have that back when he was doing the end of the Dark Tower. So the ending is okay. It ends, right? And there's neat stuff, but the bulk of the book, I'll tell you, like it hits a crescendo in the third book called Wastelands. And Wastelands was a heavy, heavy influence on my Eberron game. I, I stole the train in uh, Blaine the Train. Blaine, Blaine the Mono is a villain in Wastelands. And I took Blaine the Mono right out and stuck him right in my Eberron game and called him Karshak and did so much stuff that was almost exactly like it. And my players loved it. And it was just, I loved it. I loved that character. I loved how it turned out. Really great stuff. So, yeah. So I, I suggest, I, I love the Dark Tower series. Great high fantasy, gunslinger fantasy stuff. Really fun. So, yeah, I would check it out. So most importantly is not what I have in my appendix end, but what you have in your appendix end. Find the fiction that really inspires you. Record it. Think about it. Look back on it, right? Remember the stuff that you've read and listened to and think about which ones have the best influence. Think about what ties they have. Who are the characters you can steal? What are the interesting locations you can steal? What are the types of description and narrative that a particular author uses? And how can you use that in your game? All that kind of stuff is really outstanding. And I, I think we should all have our own appendix ends. And I think we should share them and talk to each other about them and stuff like that. So, yeah. So come come hang out in the Sly Flourish Discord server. And let's talk about what's inspiring you. You know what? I was So we were talking there yesterday. I just finished watching all of the Clone Wars my wife and I have been watching all of the Clone Wars. We realize it's kind of a sad moment because we realize like we've digested pretty much 
all of the material, at least all of the video-based material that exists for Star Wars. We've watched Rebels, we've watched Clone Wars, we've watched Bad Batch, and we've watched all the movies, right? And other than season season six, here, I'll give you a there's a here's a tip for you. Season six of Clone Wars kind of sucked, and you can pretty much skip any episode that has Jar Jar in it. And there's a lot of episodes you can skip. In fact, they have an essentials list on Disney Plus as an essentials list. And I bet you following the essentials list is pretty good. It's not the end of the world to just watch the whole thing and just skip the ones that start to suck. You'll be fine. But boy, great. There are some arcs in there. There's there's basically three major arcs that that really matter and fit into the rest of the whole Star Wars universe. And that's the rise of ah- Ahsoka Tano, right? Anakin Skywalker's Padawan. Obviously, she's a huge character. I was like the last to know how big a deal she is. But her arc throughout this whole series is amazing. The re-rise of Darth Maul, shock, you know, here's a spoiler, Darth Maul comes back. And his rise and transformation, he's had like the weirdest career of any, of any character in Star Wars. Like he's kind of done everything. It's really weird. But his rise is really interesting. The whole plot of like the Night Sisters, and he has a brother... You know, that they, they were kind of, a, yeah, I guess sort of a brother. Amazing stuff there. And then the other arc is the Mandalorian arc. The whole what happens to, this, to, the, to the world of Mandalore is another kind of major arc that, that exists there. And it involves Ben Kenobi and it involves, oh, I forget her name. There's a woman that, like a major hero and she's in Mandalorian. So that has inspired me. Like we watched that and there's amazing stuff in there, right? Some of it kind of sucks, but a lot of it's really good. Rebels is awesome. Bo-Katan. Yeah. Thank you. Bo-Katan is a, another character, major character who is now shown up in Mandalorian, right? The, 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 the live action Mandalorian played by the same actress, the voice actress uh, who played Starbuck in Battlestar Galactica is now playing uh, Bo-Katan in, in Mandalorian. So that's really cool. So what inspires you? Like, what do you dig, right? When you're, when you're, when you're, you know, watching fiction, watch good fiction, read books, read comic books, watch TV shows, watch movies, pick good stuff and, and steal from everywhere. Like I'm rewatching The Wire, one of my favorite TV series of all time, maybe my favorite TV series of all time. And boy, the characters in The Wire, you can just grab them, throw them right in your DD game. Works really well. So yeah, so that is Appendix N. So I, I had a thought, kind of tackling a topic from a different angle actually let's talk about the dm and player consent in a second we'll we'll jump over here to stress effects in van richten's guide they talk about stress and fear and i i mentioned in my review of van richten's guide that i wanted i wish they had that they had fixed and replaced the madness tables that exist in the dmg the madness tables are pretty problematic because they they overlap and bridge with and they oversimplify mental illness right which is a real thing that many people have to deal with all the time and they a lot i think particularly in the medium and long term efforts of of the madness tables that they you know, it was too much, right? And and to just and the, and the term madness, like being you know being mad or being crazy and stuff like that. These are terms, these are outdated terms that don't really have a place anymore because it turns out mental health issues are really complicated. And when you just say like, well, they're crazy, you're just you know, it's that's not helpful, right? And it's not a it's not a good way to approach the topic. And when we're looking at how D and D can expand to a much wider range of people and can help people, throwing in that kind of idea really isn't great. So how does that change? And I, I had hoped that they would change it in Van Richten's guide and come up with stress and fear as ways to do it. And they have systems for stress and fear, but they're pretty simplistic. 
Well, let's take a look at what they do. Because I, I kind of skipped over it a little bit, other than I was like, ah, it's not, didn't do what I wanted. Source books, Van Richten's guide. Is it in alphabetical order now? No. Oh, why isn't this stuff in alphabetical order? Maybe it is. No, because strict savings at the end. Weird. Fear and stress. So the they have seeds of fear, right? Which I guess is like a new way of sort of adding on a, you know, uh, uh, what do they call it? Of the new trait sort of to your character. But most of the time it's like, well, roll a check, you know? So when they experience something, they can roll DC 15 wisdom saving throw or become frightened until the next turn, you know? Okay. But that's not really, that's, that's pretty straight, right? That's not, not really that interesting stress, the way that they handle stress, you know, again, just a very few par- paragraphs and it's essentially, it's an, it's an escalating, you know, it's a, like, yeah, Scipio says it's like a flaw. You can essentially create a fearful f- flaw, right? And stress is sort of a mechanic where essentially you start with zero and every time a stressful event occurs, your stress goes up by one and, and one, you know, and then that is basically a minus one, you know, minus your stress score on attack rolls, ability checks or saving throws. So the problem is that a, that's a pretty big hit, right? It's a pretty big negative hit and it lasts a long time. And I I feel like players are just going to not like it, right? It's not cool. It's not fun. It just hurts your mechanics, and it's pretty easy for people to just be like, meh, you know, lame, right? Like, I suck now, you know? And so I don't, I don't really dig that as a system. And so, so neither of these helped me do what I wanted to do, which was create a version of the madness tables that are not nearly as program, pro- problematic. And, the, and the, the reality is I'm not the guy to do it, really, right? But I want to try. And so what I did is I put together a draft, and I talked to two friends of mine, both who are psychologists and who work with people that are going through mental, mental health issues, and said, like, hey, I want to put this thing together, and I'd like you guys to take a look at it and help me out and make sure that I'm not being a dork about this and that I'm not being, you know, help me as, as someone who is not a professional in this to put something out there that can replace this problematic thing that exists and not be an idiot about it and not end up causing as many problems, you know, as they, they're doing originally. So one of them, Michael Mallon, so Dr. Michael Mallon, who's been a friend of mine for a long time, he and I have been talking together since the 40 days long ago, and he goes by the IDM, and he is a huge Darkest Dungeon fan, and he put together a Darkest Dungeon supplement. Oh, where is it? Let's see if this is... So he created a fear and stress system. I think he has a new version of it because this one doesn't have the art showing up. I don't know. There's art in here somewhere. So he created one that's based on Darkest Dungeon, which has like increasing stress and decreasing stress. And then what kind of things, you know, what kinds of things can cause stress? How much does it increase? What happens to you? Right. And, and, and he's building off of this from his experience, you know, as a psychologist in a way that tries to make this an interesting way to handle it without, without insulting, you know, without, without, you know, attacking the people that have to deal with real mental health issues. So I like that. It's really cool. I wanted something a little bit simpler. I, I wanted like sort of a direct replacement for the mad for short-term madness in particular. So I put together, and, and Michael did give me comments on this one, a one page, this is an uncovered secret that I will probably be putting in the uncovered secret packet for patrons next month. And will hopefully be a page inside the Lazy DM Companion either later this year or early next. 
And what I wanted to do was recreate this situation where I really want to focus on the supernatural aspects of it. This is not just about normal stress and fear. This is not, and it's not a way to handle mental illness in our RPGs. That's not my place. Instead, it's when you witness something that is beyond what mortal minds should see, when you see things that are supernatural in origin or just beyond, you know, this Lovecraftian style, be, you know, you see things that cannot be. You see things that your brain cannot build a model to comprehend what happens to you when that happens, right? And in many cases, it could be a supernatural effect. So I, I created a list of 1 to 20, and it's loosely like from the smallest kind of thing that could cause this, which is like seeing a ghoul devouring somebody, all the way up to like watching the death of a god, right? These are sort of the extreme examples of the things you could witness that would cause this event. And... My idea was when you witness an event like this, and, and an easy one to think about is from like out of the abyss, right? You guys are hanging down with the Q-Toa. The Q-Toa are talking about their stupid god, Demogagagoon, Demogagagoon. And you're like, yeah, whatever. And then all of a sudden, Demogorgon comes stepping out of the Black Lake. And you're like, what the hell is that? And here is a demon prince, a being that cannot exist in this world, walking out of a lake and you're witnessing it. What does that do to you? right? What you, your brain cannot handle that. So what happens? And the answer is the DM makes a challenge rating, just like you do with the core mechanic, right? DM chooses a number. That number is 10 to 20, right? I, I, I kind of like the 10 to 20 as a, as a, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how traumatic is it to see how, 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 yeah, I guess traumatic is the right word for it. How traumatic is it to see Demogorgon coming out of a pool? And I'd give it like an eight out of 10, right? Like there's not a lot that's worse than that. You know, falling into Demogorgon's world is worse than that. Seeing God die is probably worse than that. So what is it like when you see that, right? And, the, and then the answer is, okay, so it's an 18. So all the characters that witness it make a DC 18 charisma saving throw. Why am I picking charisma? Right. And I pick charisma because charisma tends to be the stat that characters use to deal with purely supernatural elements where wisdom and, and intelligence would kind of make sense. But your wisdom and intelligence is not what helps you witness things like this and not uh, have your mind splinter. And if you think about like who uses charisma, it's sorcerers and warlocks use charisma, both of which are heavily like on the supernatural side, more so than intelligence, which is like reading books and understanding the mechanics of how spells work or, or wisdom, which is like understanding, you know, the, the theology of the gods, those don't help you here. Right. So that's why I'm picking charisma as the save. And it means like, if you think about the people who are going to do well, it's your sorcerers and your warlock, you know, your sorcerers and your warlocks have had to deal with this kind of craziness a lot. So it would make sense that they are more able to handle witnessing something like Demogorgon coming out of the pool than your wizard or your, or your cleric would. So you make the saving throw on a failure. You're stunned for one minute and you make the saving throw again at the end of all of your turns. So two of the, I got comments back from both Michael and, and from Megan, Megan, Dr. Megan Connell that both said like stunning for a minute is really bad. And I agree. However, it's either stunning for a minute or stunning until the end of, end of the next turn, which is not, that might be okay. And maybe I'll put in an option here. That's like you either, you know, you, you can choose how much of an effect, but because you're making the save at the end of your turn, every time the hope is you'll eventually get out of it. Right. The hope is eventually you'll hit something where you're you're going to you're going to break out of this. So and it's curable with lesser or greater restoration. 
so so I think that that I think that that can work. And by the, the whole like stun for one minute is typically how a mechanic like this in 5e is handled. It can seem extreme here, but if you look at like hold person or you look at charm person or you look at, you know, dominate monster and stuff like that, they all have these sort of durations that are like that. So I don't, or fear, like idea of being, you know, like if you saw the fear mechanic that is inside Van Richten's guide, that could be extreme. But so stunned so uh, uh stomperger says stun seems pretty severe would incapacitated be more appropriate isn't incapacitated is worse than stunned stunned you're still defensive you can still kind of you know you can still kind of react and and you you cannot be coup de grad incapacitated you're in your coup de grad so it's worse yeah incapacitated is worse than stunned does stunned include incapacitation are we right about that i don't think stun includes inca incapacitation but let's find out it's a good question Let's look at the stunned. Stunned is worse. You were right. Stunned is worse than incapacitated. Can't move speaker and, and can speak only falteringly. Creature automatically fails strength and dex saving throws. All attacks have advantage. Incapacitated. Can't take reactions or react. What am I thinking of? There's another one that's worse where people can come up to you and coup de gras you. I guess that's unconscious. Right? Unconscious is worse. Okay. So stunned is worse than, 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 than incapacitated. Incapacitated. Can't take actions or reactions. But I still think stunned is the right one because this these things make sense. When you think about like if you fail that saving throw, when you see Demogorgon coming out of a pool, you know, you can you can only speak only falteringly makes sense. Right. And you're not going to be dodging fireballs. Right. And people should have advantage to hit you. I don't think that that's out of line. Where did it go? I lost it. So, but I'll think about that. And, and I'll, I'll think about, the, 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 so the, the idea of it lasting, I mean, it's a big effect, right? That, like, one thing is, like, you wouldn't use this all the time. This is a rare thing. And I get that, like, beholding a bloody sacrificial altar. So maybe what I need to say is, like, it is a big deal for, for you to pull this off. It's not something that you would use often. It is something you would use rarely, right? And you would use it in, mostly in extreme circumstances where, where it would make sense. An example of overuse in Shadow of the Demon Lord, they have sort of a fear, uh, a fear and horror mechanic where like when you see a terrible thing, you sort of make a save. And I remember it was overused in that. It was sort of like every time you saw a zombie, you rolled this. And it's like, I've seen zombies before. Eventually you're going to get, you know, steeled to seeing a zombie. And I house ruled it that you only ever hit this the first time you saw a horrific monster. It's fear and horror, right? And so they had fearful monsters and horrific monsters. And you only ever really rolled it the first time you saw it. And that made, and that made sense. So Evil John says, player, I made my save. DM, great. See you next round in 15 minutes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Once you make your save, well, it only happens once. It happens the minute you see the event. And it happens at one time. It's not an effect. It's not like fear. It's not like a fear aura that's always going. But yeah, it'll take you out for a round. I mean, stun, you know, stun does that, right? And a lot of times it might take a few characters out for a round. So it's sort of like, you know, it's sort of like fear, right? We, we, I, I don't know if we have the same issue with a dragon's fear, right? Dragon's fear lasts until you make your save, I think. All right, let's take a look. Ancient red dragon. The frightful presence. Each creature in the dragon's choice within 120 feet of where must succeed. Yeah, fear for, frightened for one minute, right? So it's the same kind of thing. Look at that, DC 21. Oof. Of course, they expect that most people have a way to get rid of fear. And the idea is once you make your saving throw, you're not affected by it again. I could put a little thing like that in there, but it, it, it only happens the first time. So I should make that, I should make that more clear. So that's part of it. And I'll, I'm still playing with the rules, right? Like I just wrote this two days ago. So then the other question is what happens to you? And this is what I loved about the madness table is that 
it wasn't just a matter, and this, this is where it's interesting, right? It's not a matter of like you're stunned, go go on your phone. Because the next part is now you roll a d20 to see what happens to you when you're when this has occurred to you. And, you know, it could be you fall into a deep, a deep sleep dreaming of darkness or physical pain and burning racks your body or you hear echoing sounds of children's crying. These are the effects that occur that are narrative and interesting. And this is what I liked about the madness table is that it wasn't just a status effect with no descriptor. I want to know what happens. Why? Blood begins flowing from your eyes, right? Like, how fun is that? That, like, not particularly, but, like, you sit there and you look out and Demogorgon comes out, right? And you roll a deep, you, everyone, you have three people fail the save. You roll three and like one says, the faces of your friends hideously contort and you hear whispers of an otherworldly being. And someone else says, you know, you collapse as your legs lose all strength. That's cool, right? Like different things are happening to people. Sure, it's the stun effect, right? But, but different, things, different things occur. I think the main thing is, and I, I think it's something that I need to add in here and I will, that this should be used rarely. This is this should come up every, you know, rarely and usually in pretty extreme circumstances. So probably no more, certainly no more than once a session and probably even less than that, right? But it, you could kind of use it. It's also a good way to balance boss fights, right? Like this is a good way. Bosses have a hard day, right? All of them have a hard day. They're going to get their asses kicked. Let's be honest, right? So if you have a boss, like imagine Cult of the Centipede, right? Let's go to Cult of the Centipede. Well, Sly Flourish. And we're going to go to Fantastic Lairs. I think Centipede, is Centipede Cult is one? Centipede Cult isn't one of the freebies. Damn. Sorry. So there is a lair in Fantastic Lairs called the something of the, something of the centipede cult, right? And there's a big cultist of a bunch of centipedes. And you're, you're working your way in there and you're learning all this stuff. When you get into that final battle and you open the door and you see a cult fanatic and a bunch of, you know, big centipede altar and you see this stuff, that might be one where like the horror of the situation is beyond your mind's comprehension. Everybody roll this stress check, right? Stress saving throw. And that would be like a DC... 13 12 or 13 that's pretty you know seeing centipede cult is probably pretty you know low on this hi mom my mom is here everybody say hello to my mom so they see this dc 12 so everybody makes like a dc 12 charisma saving throw those that fail roll on that on that list right now it's possible i think i might add in because i want the dm to have some freedom with this right so one of them might be i don't know where the hell i'm gonna fit all this in there's not a lot of room left on this page but one of them might be that you only have it last until the end of their next turn Right, right. That once they, it happens right away at the end of their next turn, they're no longer stunned. Okay, that's that's pretty low, but because yeah, you have this situation of like what, what, who, you know, the poor person with the dump stat, right? Oh, I'm minus one, and I have to roll a DC thirteen eventually. But you're probably gonna make it eventually, right? So, so I don't know. Same level with that fear effect, though, right? Fear could be bad too. So, so I don't know how to how I feel about that. Maybe somebody could shake you and you could make the saving throw again. Somebody could use an action. They could like, you know, like the lineup in airplane, right? Where everybody lines up to slap you in the face. And each time they come and they, you know, slap you and you get to make another saving throw. So you could have like your line of friends slapping you in the face to try to get you in a saving throw. So I could maybe add some stuff like that. So, so I don't know, right? I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll toy with that. 
but the flavor is kind of the interesting part. And, and, and so it's balanced for boss fights is that bosses are going to get their asses kicked anyway. Having a round where the boss can do things where half the party is stunned and like they're, it kind of breaks the character's plan, right? They have this like surefire, I'm going to use my sharpshooter and I'm going to go after the boss and we're going to mark him and we're going to do all this stuff and hex him and the boss is going down. Oh my God, three of us are stunned. Right, like well, now the boss has some rounds to do some things, and the, you know it's a it's a way of scaling a boss fight to make it pretty interesting. And I and I used it a lot in Out of the Abyss, and it mattered. Right, it really had an effect. So yeah, new new Grange Huntress says an alternative stun which is less debilitating but might have the PCs is Tasha's mind whipping until they. Yeah, I, I want to use a, just a normal. I want to keep it simple, right? And like I want to use a standard status effect. I could see an argument for incapacitation, but really, if you think about what this does and the effects of stunning, it feels right. It feels closer to me. I just it's a kind of an effect that I would be wary of. I'm a lot more wary of an effect where no one gets to even make a saving throw. Right. And I think in this one, because they can make a saving throw at the end of each of their turns, you know, it will end. I, so, so 5e does not have mechanics for something lasting only a, they, they only have either one round or a time period that's usually a minute. Right. So they don't have round based status effects. It doesn't say like it lasts three rounds, you know, instead, you know, I don't know if, 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 if we felt that might, I don't know. I got to see. I got to think about this. But anyway, my hope, my main hope is can it, can it replace the problematic aspects that exist in the madness tables? And I think it does that. The other one is dealing with long-term effects. And this gets into a conversation that I want to have. Uh, I don't, you know, hopefully I can give it some justice, which is, you know, when you, when you're putting a status effect like this, I think one of the major problems with the madness tables in the DMG is that it imparts, it, it imparts a stereotype of a mental illness on a character without that player having anything to say about it. Right? They don't get a chance to do anything with it. And that's a it's a missed opportunity and it's and it's also a problem. It, you know, it, it removes agency from the player with that character, and that's not something you want to do. So what I recommend is that instead of rolling on like tables of, of phobias or weird effects that you have spend time with the player to think about how it would work and in, or, or not, right? Like if they're not interested, they're not interested and maybe they, they don't have one. But if, if a character's interest, if a player is interested in exploring the idea that wit what, what are they like after they've witnessed Demogorgon coming out of the pool, how does that permanently change them? Let them pick one, right? Let them say how it affects their character. Don't, don't roll on a table and apply a thing that's going to last for the rest of their character's life. Like that kind of sucks. So that last paragraph that I have in here is that you and the player can work together to decide what kind of longer term effect might be on that character. And I, I think that that is a less problematic way of handling something like this, which also gets into the other topic I want to talk about, which is the idea, and, and it's, you know, it's sort of a safety tool conversation. I think Evil John brought this up, and I mentioned it up here, right? Like, like you know, the last paragraph in the first part says, remember that when you're handling kind of this kind of thing, you want to talk to your players about it first and, and, and make it part of your session zero. Talk about it as a, from, a, from a period of, of a safety tool, but also from like a, is this the kind of game they want to play in? Do they want to play in a game where their character gets stunned after seeing Demogorgon walk out of a pool? Maybe not, right? But maybe if it's like, if you say like there's a horror-filled aspect to this game and there's, you know, you're going to witness things, more Lovecraftian angle, you're going to witness things like this. You know, how do you do that? So, but there's an interesting topic about this. And one of the things I thought there, there used to be an adventurers league rule that I really liked 
And I think they've taken it out or it's not there. I don't know how it plays out. And somebody can tell me if they still have this. But the question is like a character cannot adversely affect another character without that player's permission. And I think that is a really good, a really good rule to have in place that, that like all groups should have, right? If a, you know, if one character is going, a very simple example is there's a fighter attacking a group of gnolls. The fighter's up there. The gnolls are around it. There's five gnolls. And the wizard is like, boy, I really want to fireball those five gnolls. But I could only hit two or three of them if I don't put the fighter in there. But if I keep the fighter in the center of it, I can hit all five, right? They should not be able to cast that fireball and hit the fighter without the player of the fighter saying, I'm good. That's fine, right? And what it does is it lifts up the question out of the characters and out of the world and into the real world. And it has sort of a built-in check-in. And the built-in check-in is, you know, Michelle, are you okay with Yeppa getting fireballed if we hit all those gnolls? And Michelle can say, yeah, I'm, that's fine. I'd look at the sheet and yeah, that's fine. And then the character, the character doesn't have to necessarily know, but the player knows. And you've, you have this like human to human outside of game connection. Are you okay? You're good. Okay. We're good. Right. Really, really valuable. And I think probably ought to be in my session zero guide. Right. I think that there should be a, like a, a default along with my character, is there working with the rest of the group to solve the problem of this campaign along with having that wired in. So you don't have the whole, like, oh, I don't know why I'm with this group and I don't want to be with the group. And my character is a hermit and likes to be up by himself. Okay. Your character is a hermit off by himself. Roll a new character that wants to hang out with the group, right? That like you want to, you want to handle these things before the characters even get built. And one of them should be that I recognize that my character is not going to be able to affect another character without that player saying it's okay. My rogue cannot steal gold from the other players. My wizard cannot, cannot, you know, cast harmful spells on the group just because the other ones are there. My cleric can't withhold. This is one I kind of have to deal with my cleric, which is my cleric can't withhold healing from a play from a character that should obviously be healed because of some other story thing, right? Without, Without having some kind of step up, like, you know, are, are you know, my character is considering not healing you because of X. Are you okay? No, I could really use the heal. Okay. We'll find an in-game reason. It's a good way to step up. So that works really well, I think. And I think that that would be a good one. And I'll, I'll state it again, because I think it's a good one to add to your session zero notebook. It's a good one to reinforce with your players that a, a character cannot adversely affect another character without that player's consent. Really easy, right? Really simple one. And just a good way to handle a lot of like interpersonal drama that you don't have to handle. It's not, it's not like a big safety issue thing, right? It's just a check-in on we're cool as players, right? Dry throat. You can see how good my software is on getting all this uh, the coughing out. It can detect, auto-detect coughing. Yeah, so Malicious Advice says, I had a problem with one player wanting to roll influence decisions by another character. And I think somebody mentioned that Chris Perkins said, yeah, you can't roll persuasion on another character. Right. Like the player will decide whether they're persuaded or not. And sometimes you'll have like the sleight of hands, deception checks, you know, perception from one player versus deception of another to kind of see a thing. You just want to step up and be like, are we good with this interaction that's occurring? It's funny and it's cool. Are you bought, you know, but are we, are, you know, are you cool with my character trying to take this thing from you? And the one might be like, we'll see. Yeah, I'm, I'm good either way. Let's see if it happens. Right. That player-to-player -player consent, I think, is really cool. How does that apply to the DM? 
right? The DM is always adversely affecting the characters, right? The whole world. The DM is controlling the world, and the world has the potential to definitely adversely affect the characters. And when an ogre comes up and hits you in the head with a spiked club, that probably counts as an adverse effect, adversely affecting that character. So where does the DM fall into this? And obviously, the, you know, the answer is, well, you have your things like lines and veils. So you've stated clearly the themes that the adventure is going to have and some general expectations about how it's going to run. And the things that are hard lines, you're not going to do this. And no one wants anybody to do this. And veils of like, if we do something like this, it'll be handled. We're going to handle it, you know, sort of off screen. Okay. That's that's good. You also have something like an X card. I like the let's let's pause for let's pause for a minute or pause for pause for a minute. And that is sort of a verbal X card of let's break character. Let's talk about what's going on. Let's try to figure out how we how we come to this and then we can and we can drop back in. Pause for a minute, I think I think works well when you have a voice, a voice based system, like if you're playing over Discord. It's a good way to have just like a, a an X card that everybody can hear, right? And then there's another one that's like checking in, right? That you should regularly check in with the players. Hey, are we cool with this, right? Are we, are we cool with, you know, an example that will come up in my Frost Maiden game is one of the players has her character is the daughter of two cultists of the uh, cult of Oral, but also is potentially the illegitimate child of a Goliath who's also the, happens to be the father of one of the other characters. And, you know, that's the kind of thing where if, if I'm affecting that, right, if, if I, the DM, am making these things, I just want to go back to the player and be like, are you cool with how this is going? Right. And the player can say, you know, yeah, I'm good. So check-ins are also important. So I think that those three ideas kind of handle the, you know, the player to DM version of a character can affect another character without that player's permission. Those are the sort of the permission types, the lines and veils, you know, having a safety tool like, like the X card or, or like, you know, pause for a minute pause for a second and then checking in but is there is there more right is there are there other aspects to this and i think about like well where are the areas that we need to be careful of and i think evil john brought it up earlier when we were talking about these stress these stress rules taking away agency from the player is always something you want to be careful with everything from a vampire cast charm person on you and now you are a you consider the vampire a close ally and want to and want to serve you want to be you know you want to just be a little careful about about ripping the the player's ability to control their character away from them i think with something like a vampire charm like if they're if they expect you know if they are fighting a vampire hopefully they have some kind of understanding but you might want to say like this game yeah evil john says i get grumpy right some people get grumpy right and you know and then some people get grumpy and some people get really pissed off right and that can hurt a game right so if you say like Keep in mind, we're playing Ravenloft. There are vampires. And from time to time, you might find yourself in a position where you lose short-term control over your character. And then what are the boundaries of that? It won't permanently affect your character and your character won't commit an action that permanently affects them. So you're not going to say like, you're charmed and you went and murdered the mayor, right? And now you've got to live with that, right? For the rest of you, even though the charm went away, you're still the murderer of the mayor. That is an example where you've you've created a situation where you took agency away from the player, had their character commit this act, and then handed the player back to the, the character back to them, and like now you got to handle it. That's probably not cool, right? So keeping in mind, like yeah, a vampire might charm you and might get you to attack one of your allies for a round or two, right? Or might you know come over and drain blood from you. 
but you re you know, a you generally want to be careful taking agency away from a from a player from their character always and that includes stress and fear and uh, a lot of other potential you know potential aspects you know ryan from 2c gaming was here and mentioned feeble mind right feeble mind is something that can really have a major uh, a major removal of agency from a from a character right so and, and then the big one killing them right dead characters there it's real hard for dead characters to do a whole lot of stuff so how do you handle agency then right and i think there like sometimes there is there's an ex expectation that okay if we fight a bunch of fire giants I, my character might get killed like evil john says you'll probably be pretty grumpy if your fire if your guy gets killed you'll be particularly grumpy if it gets killed and you had no expectation that that was going to happen and that happens in tomb of annihilation right tomb of annihilation has some deadly deadly traps that have no logical reason for how they behave. And it's just bad luck. And the example is the obsidian, I'm gonna spoil Tomb of Annihilation. There's an obsidian coffin with a bunch of buttons. And the only way to handle it is to have somebody get inside the coffin, it closes and you hit the button and it disintegrates them. And this happened to one of my players, right? And thinking back, I'm like, man, that was a mistake. Right? I should not have done that. That was that was a bad way to go. And you're like, well, what else could you do? And you're like, well, permanent wounds or I don't know. Like, maybe that's the kind of thing where you take the player aside and say, like, okay, so here's the situation. Something terrible happens there. What do you think happens? What do you think happens to the character? And try to take it outside, right? I don't know. So, you know, there's other other ways. Now, like if you're fighting a beholder, again, and the, and the players have a reasonable expectation of, of you know, or a reasonable understanding of the game works, if the beholder disintegrates you, you kind of know what's coming, and you kind of know it's a risk, Right. So that's, that's that, that question of like, where does that line of consent exist when we're talking about these things in D and D and, you know, obvious ones are like intelligent magic items, right. Or uh, the one we're going to talk about in my rhyme of the frost maiden game is the, uh, the mind flayer symbiote, right. One of the, one of the characters has a mind flayer symbiote. I have very specifically not had it control the character. He knows it's there and he knows it's a risk and he knows he wants to do something about it. It's also given an ability he didn't have, you know, but I'm not going so far. There's a risk there, right? And he's worried about it, but I'm not taking the agency away. And the reality is the way the direction the game is going to go is he's going to have the ability to decide how it affects him, right? I'm going to work with the player on that. The player is going to have the option, right? I'm not going to just grab his character and like head explodes and now you're a mind flayer, Right. So that they brought that up. Like, well, if I, if my head explodes and I turn into a mind flare, do I control the mind flare? And I'm like, nope. And like, oh, I don't want that. Right. So it's about agency. Oh, I get to be a mind flare. That'd be very cool. So I think it's a thing worth thinking about. And I don't yet have a good answer. I think watching player agency is an important thing. Watching anytime you're dorking with player agency is a thing and making sure that you have an, a, a, a reasonable expectation that you've described a reasonable expectation with the players on what they can expect when it comes to the removal of agency. How deadly is your game? You know, are they going to suffer effects that are going to have permanent changes in their characters that they can't really control? You know, what are these, what are these sort of questions right that come up and ponder it right and it doesn't this isn't like a people are being overly sensitive thing either like trust me everybody gets pissed off when they lose agency right no one likes it and no one likes it when it's unexpected i haven't seen anybody i've seen it happen a lot i've done it to people and i've never seen anybody happy about it so i think that there's degrees i think the check-in is also really good when you're doing one of these longer term angles and you got like major arcs with a story and you're manipulating part of it and it's really having an effect on the character check in a lot right and really ask to step outside the story and be like are you cool with this because if they're not it's going to be a problem right and it might be too late 
So, yeah. I think we have talked about all of the things that I wanted to talk about. So, we will end that session. So, let's see. We talked about that. Oh, I never got to talk. I never got to do my rant about Adventures League. So, we'll do that next week. Next week, rant about Adventures League. And why are there four different phases of the game? How, how they always seem to get so close to a really good system. And they're like, well, we're going to do this other thing. What's the other thing? Masters, Legacy. I don't even remember the other two, right? And you're like, oh, my God. Like, four different kinds of games? It's so bad that people I know who are really lawful good, right, really want to play, are like, I give up. Like, I'm just going to play whatever character I feel like playing. Right? They're just ignoring it. And it's because nobody knows. And I'll give you an example. They have Masters, which is sort of like this always ongoing, what is it? Masters, Seasonal, Legacy, and Other. And Other is like Eberron. And I get that one. Like if you have an Eberron campaign, it should go the way your Eberron campaign is going. Masters is like always evergreen. So I guess like your Lost Mine of Andalver, and I know Candlekeep Mysteries is in there, and they have their Dreams of the Red Wizards, which they love to promote. And... Those are always on, so Masters is always going. Legacy are all the old stuff, so all of the other hardback adventures plus all the previous seasons of content is considered Legacy. And then the current season is considered Seasonal. And the idea is that a Legacy character can go to Masters, and a Seasonal character can go to Master, but Masters can't come back to either of those two. So once you go to Master, you can't come back out again. Oh, what a hassle. And then there's other, which is like dedicated campaigns, like your Eberron character can't go into Forgotten Realms. I get that one. That makes sense. Why are you making it so hard, right? Why? People just want to play D&D. The, the magic item rules are great. The leveling rules are great. You know, everything else is really solid, right? And, and since you have limits on magic items and limits on gold accruement already, it doesn't matter if you're in Legacy or not. Who cares? If someone wants to play their Fandelver character in Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, and then go back and play Fandelver. Let them. They're going to do it anyway, right? They're not, they're, they're going to cheat. You're just making everybody cheat. Just, and I know, like, they're going to get there. You know the rule is, like, next year they're going to change the rules again anyway. And then they'll probably be like, yeah, that was a mistake. We shouldn't have done that. Like, oh, my God. Oh, you're making it so hard. The one that really boggled my mind was I was like, well, what are the Moonshay adventures? Are the Moonshay adventures legacy? Because there's some that are years old now. Are they seasonal? Because some of them happen now. Are they masters? Because they're kind of evergreen. And the answer was all three. Some of the Moonshays are legacy. Some of the Moonshays are masters. And some of them are seasonal. How the hell am I supposed to know that? Right? So Evil John says they're on their own island, but not really, right? Oh, they're on their own island. Yeah, that's pretty funny. So I guess I am going to rant about it because here I am ranting about it. Oh my God, right? Like all the rest of it is cool. Hey, level up on an adventure if you want or don't. We don't care. Perfect, right? Pick up a magic item. It's okay if multiple characters pick up the same magic item in an adventure. Great. Items are limited. You get one magic item at tier one, and it's uncommon. You get three magic items at tier two, five at tier three, whatever, a golf bag full of magic items at tier four, but who cares? It's tier four. And there's level, and there's limits on uncommon, rare, or, or uh, legendary, and I don't know what they are, right? Great. That makes sense. That way I can't dual wield Harzawans, right? I'm on board. Gold limit. I get it. You don't want wizards to be able to just pump money into all the spells, and they always have all the spells all the time. Okay. I get it. That makes sense. Like having an upper tier gold cap that even if you spend your gold, you can't go above the cap. That makes sense. 
right? I'm good with all that. That's all awesome. Seasonal stuff. And then they're like, oh, we're going to do seasons. Like, oh my God, you're so close to a perfect system. And then you're like, no, we got to screw something up. We got to make something really complicated and weird that no one understands how to do. You know, why? So that's my rant. I don't know. Well, you know, what do I know? I've only been playing organized play for 20 years, right? Who could say? And granted, I'm not really an organized play guy. I play like five times a year, but I do play it and I do watch the rules and I play a lot of D&D and I don't understand what you're doing or why. So I don't know. Merrick, who plays a lot of organized play, you know, Merrick, are you on board? You like the, the seasonal, seasonal masters legacy. Is there anybody who likes it? Is there anybody who's like, you know, this is a really good system and here's why? Hate it, says Merrick, right? And I get it. Like, there's certain things, like, you don't want the level three character walking in with the shield guardian that they picked up in Tomb of Annihilation. Create that. They had a banned list. They used to have a list of, like, these things don't work. You can't have your dark powers from Ravenloft. You can't bring those out of Ravenloft into somewhere else. And the idea of, like, yeah, there's story-based things that you might get if you play a hardcover. You can't bring those in. You can't fly in on a griffin that you picked up from somewhere. You can't walk in with your pair of shield guardians, right? That makes total sense, right? Block, there are certain things you should just block and not have available. But don't make me lie. You're making me lie. Like, I, if I want to play, my friend Teos brought up the fact that, like, you go, you sign up for a convention, you look at what games are available, because a lot of them are full, you select a bunch, and you're like, oh, I'm going to pick all tier two, and I can play my character. And then it's like, well, sorry, this is a seasonal tier two, and that's a master. So if you play seasonal and then masters, you can't come back to the next seasonal game you got. You're telling people what? They just paid to fly out there and they're paid for tickets and they can't play their character? No, they're going to play anyway. And if you're a halfway decent DM, you're going to let them play, even if you know that they switched to masters because they paid real money to play that game, right? Oh, all right. I'll keep, that will be the rant. I am done. And they work really hard. I'm not knocking any individuals, right? The people that do AL stuff work really, really hard. There's just been this weird way of how the rule, I don't know if it's between the AL admins and WotC and back and forth, and there's like negotiations and stuff, or new rules come out of WotC's tower, and they're like, what the hell is this? Which I think happens. All I know is every season they've changed the rules, and they get closer to good ones. And then sometimes they revert back again. You're like, oh, don't go back to that, right? Boy, I don't know why they do what they do. And and sometimes it's like it's like they just, you know, it's, it's like they look at it. It's almost like killing characters at first level, right? Like... Sure, we're going to have a first-level D&D adventure. Make sure there's like a CR3 in there that wipes out a lot of first-level characters because we don't want the game to grow too much. We don't want too many people really enjoying this game. So make sure that we at least, you know, half of the players who play die in the first adventure so that they won't want to play anymore, right? It feels like the same way. Like, we'd love to have people play a lot of D&D at our organized play, but how are we going to make sure we never get too many? Well, I know. Let's put really convoluted rules in place that no one can really understand. And let's enforce those really, you know, let's make it look like we're enforcing them, but then not really enforce it. So nobody actually knows, can I get away with this or not? Let's do that, right? And that way we won't have so many people signing up for our convention. That's what it feels like. It feels like they're putting rules in place specifically to make it harder to play D&D. Don't do that. Okay, I'm done. That was my rant. I, I can't have a show and not have a rant that you guys can enjoy, that my friends here can enjoy. All right, I am ending the stream. So thank you very much for hanging out and listening to the, to the lazy D&D talk show. It's always a great pleasure to hang out with so many awesome people. If you're on Twitch, stick around because we're going to do the lazy DM prep where we talk about Frostmaiden. So don't leave yet. Uh, but if you're watching this video on YouTube, thank you very much. Once again, if you want to help me out, there's a few things you could do. You can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You can subscribe to me right here on YouTube. You can 
Uh, subscribe. Uh, you can help support me on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash slyflourish, or you can pick up my book, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. Thank you all very much and have a great day.